listening to the Bible 126 show. In general, we're going to take more than one chapter each session, especially as we move into the narrative part of the book of Genesis. But there is one chapter that we feel is significant enough to sort of focus our attention on because it has such prophetic implications. And that's chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Now, we've gone through the creation, the fall of man, Cain and Abel, days of Noah, flood of Noah, the post-flood world. That was through the first ten chapters of Genesis. We're now in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. This session will end what many people consider the first major section of Genesis, the second session being the patriarchs from Genesis 12 through 50, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And... um, We'll have uh, chapters 12 through 20 on Abraham himself, and we need to understand that every benefit you and, I, you and I have, even as Gentiles, derives from Abraham and the covenant with him. Chapters 21 through 26 will be Isaac, and then 27 to 36, Jacob, and then 37 to the end of the book, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But uh, let's just jump in. We're going to go from the flood world to the Tower of Babel. The first verse is a grabber. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. I know you can pick up encyclopedias and all kinds of books on the origin of languages, but you need to recognize much of that is conjecture and pieced together by hints. The scripture tells us, and they're the ones that know, that at one time there was one language and uh, one speech. But it goes on, it says, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and dwelt there. This is a very disturbing verse. We touched upon this when we were uh, under the flood of Noah, because there's all kinds of colorful traditions and hints of different kinds that the Ark of Noah is on a mountain in Turkey called Mount Ararat, and may turn out to be there. Um, There are all kinds of stories. Strange enough, if you chase these down, they become quite problematical. They're hearsay. They're stories of... Uh, second hand, and, and there's little scraps of things people find that seem to disappear, and on it goes. It's a very, very tough area to research, and many people have diligently tried to piece that together. There have been many exhibitions mounted to try to get at this very, very difficult place called Ararat in Turkey, and all of that could be misplaced energy, because from the text, you would draw the conclusion that the descendants of Noah journeyed from the east to Shinar, which means if you're at Babylon, you'd look eastward for the site of the ark, not north. Mount Ararat is quite a ways north and slightly west of Shinar or Babylon. And so there are some scholars that are still suspect that the ark is yet to be found because many of us believe it has a prophetic role when the time comes um, for a number of reasons. But we wouldn't be at all surprised if it shows up in the high mountains of Iran. 
And by the way, small point I forgot to bring out in the previous session, the word ilam for the Persians is the word for high. And that's, people assume, well, it's a high plateau over there. Yes, but there's also high mountains, and it could be traditionally high because they came from a high place down to the, the uh, anyway, we'll see. So we'll see as time goes on. But be sensitive to the fact that there's a scriptural possibility that the ark is yet going to be found, and it'll be found east of Babylon, not north. Anyway, people, they said one to another, go to, let us make brick. Didn't know they're navy people. Go to. That's interesting. Anyway, and they said to one another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And the so-called slime, a bitumen sort of a tar, is, is well known in that region as a building material. It can harden very, very hard. And uh, the brick, when burned uh, you know, uh, in a kiln, can be a very, very uh, substantial stuff to work with. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, that, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You know, that sounds pretty good. Sounds like a great project, except it's got a couple of problems. One is it's going exactly against God's commandment. He told them to scatter, to spread around the world, to replenish the earth. This is a form of rebellion. And it's interesting that cities tend to be. The larger the city, the more sin it seems to generate. And we can go into statistics there, but I don't think I need to derail us on that topic right now. Let's build us a city and a tower. And those people who assume that what they meant was a tower that was high enough to reach heaven, these people aren't stupid. They aren't naive in that sense. Uh, they're not going to try to reach into heaven in the sense of physically reaching into heaven. But there are many people that try to reach into heaven by little shrines or other artifacts and crystals, what have you. And the, 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 the grammatical construction here, it, it's very naive to assume that they figure that if they make it high enough, they can walk up into heaven. That's, just, that's Sunday school coloring book stuff. See, all of us are victims of the little diagrams in National Geographic and Scientific American where it always says the ascent of man. They show these apes and they get a little more manlike. There's a whole row of them until finally you got modern man with a briefcase. You know, and so as if we came from apes and we we're getting better and better and better all the way. And even though we reject evolution, we subconsciously buy that paradigm. It's not true. It's very, very possible that these people are a lot smarter than we are. They may not have had the technology we have, but they could have been much smarter. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. In our modern culture, you go to school typically for maybe 20 years. And then you have 20 years of productivity, and then you start to decay in your terms of your contribution to the economy. You follow what I'm saying? Now imagine if you had a lifetime of hundreds of years. Number one, you have more time for schooling. You've got more overlap of generations to learn from them by. And you start thinking that through, and you begin to wonder just how sophisticated that technology might be. Because even though our acceleration, our, our technology has given us tremendous acceleration because of our information tools of uh, various kinds, uh, at the same time, um, the, 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 the specialization and the penalties of that are, are, give us blinders that are classic. But anyway, um, so these people, anyway, uh, don't dismiss them as, you know, uh, uh, you know 
one arm's length away from a caveman. These people can be intellectually far more sophisticated than we generally ascribe to them. But anyway, they're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower. View that as a temple. And it's generally reckoned as having seven levels, one for each of the naked eye planets. Most scholars who've gotten into this believe it was very heavily astrological in its design. Now something else that we date from this time, by the way, is the zodiac, what we call the zodiac. If we study the Hebrew Matzeroth, and we, we learn some very interesting things. Let's just, let me step back a little bit. I didn't put slides in here, but I think we've got time to squeeze this in. Just a quick review. When we were earlier in the book of Genesis, we talked about signs in the heavens. Remember, the, 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 the pictures that are associated with these star clusters were not shapes of the stars. That's nonsense they try to sell you in a planetarium show. It's foolishness. No, those pictures are to remind you of the story that's associated with that group of stars. The story is portrayed by the names of the stars in the order of brightness. If you learn the names of the stars in the order of brightness, it will suggest the story, and the picture reminds you of that story. We don't know all the names from the ancient days. We know some of the Hebrew names, and we know some of the Arabic names which come close. But as you fit that together, you will be stunned to discover that it lays out the plan of God from the virgin birth of this gal. She's a virgin, and there's a child in the picture, and she has a corn, uh, 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 wheat in one hand and a uh, uh, what the other hand is. Anyway, the whole story is the, from the virgin birth all the way down to Leo the lion of the tribe of Judah. Each one of the 12 signs of the zodiac, if you talk about the signs of the Matzeroth in Hebrew, each one of those 12 signs is associated with one of the 12 tribes. It lays out God's plan. And that sounds bizarre until you get into it and study it. And I encourage you, if you're interested to do that, we, we touched upon that in our earlier study of, of the signs in the heavens and so forth. You can look into that. But the point is, there are scholars that believe that Adam and Enoch and some of these early uh, leaders used that mnemonic to teach their kids the plan of God. And uh, the signs of heaven, they would, they would teach them what God was going to do, the Redeemer from the Virgin and so forth, all this. Now, when you get to this time, that is going to get corrupted. The paganism of this temple is going to change those labels into mythology. And most, ast most astronomy uses the labels from the zodiac of this period. There's a famous... Uh, 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 zodiac and dendra that gives the labels. To, it's interesting that these pictures and labels are virtually the same in all languages. They all derive from Babel, from Babylon. But it's the pagan version that you're exposed to. And so just be sensitive to that. But anyway, they build this astrological temple that will reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, most of us realize... The Fertile Crescent is where the cradle of civilization was. Of course, we have Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia. And uh, it is uh, the land of Nimrod had Babel, uh, Akkad, uh, uh, and uh, Erech, Nineveh, Sumer, and Kala. Kala is about 20 miles from, from Nineveh, so very close. The, the, this, this, is, this is the real the cradle of civilization in its literal sense. And uh, uh, there's obviously uh, emblems of this all around the world. And the Lord came down to see the city. It's interesting. They're trying to reach this, build this temple to see the Lord. The Lord comes down to see them and to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this 
they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. That's not a, a generic statement that of just general progress. It's a statement of the kind of evil they'll undertake. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. God told them to scatter across the world. They didn't do that. They want to cluster and... and God made them scatter. They couldn't understand. Can you imagine those guys working and suddenly couldn't understand each other? And they did it without PhDs and things. That's terrific. Okay. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. You can tell there's a pun involved. Babel means a tower to heaven. But Babel also means confusion, right? And uh, to confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. This is, the divi- this is what it says the days of Peleg was the earth divided. This is what it's talking about, I believe, not continental drift. Not that there wasn't continental drift, but I think it even happened more dramatically even earlier, not suddenly, as we, I mean, not uh, gradually. Suddenly it was part of the, the flood thing. So, okay. Now we have a pickup here of the generations of Shem. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go deeper into this particular thread for, the, for reasons that setting the stage for the next whole section of Je- the rest of Genesis. From 12 on, it's going to hang on Abraham. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, and he begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived, after he begot Arphaxad, 500 years. Wow. And begot sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and 30 years and begot Salah. And Arphaxad lived after he begot Salah 403 years and begot sons and daughters. See, with with those kind of livelihoods, I think the kids are probably easier to raise. I think our teenagers would have driven them to the grave probably earlier. But anyway, (laughs) Shem. Elam, remember we went through this. Elam, Asher, Arphaxad. And under Arphaxad he had Selah, Eber, Peleg, when the earth was divided. That's what we're talking about. And he had a brother, Yachtan. And Lud and Aram were also direct descendants of Shem. But from... Uh, Peleg, we have Ru, Surug, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. And of course, it, this is by way of review from the last session, Abraham is our target. We really want to understand Abraham. God took an, a pagan Gentile and made him the first Jew, in effect. And uh, through, through whom all of us get every blessing we have from the Lord comes through the Abrahamic covenant. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. Salah, after she begot, uh, he begot Eber 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived four and 30 years and begot Peleg. And, after, and Eber, Eber lived after he begot Peleg 430 years and begot sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. And uh, Peleg lived after he begot Ru 209 years and begot sons and daughters. And Ru lived two and 30 years and begot Serug. And Ru lived after he begot Serug 207 years and begot sons and daughters. And Sarah lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor 200 years, he begot sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 9 and 20 years and begot Terah. Now, Terah is important. That's the father of Abraham. And we're going to get into next time some surprising insights that have to do with just exactly who was who when and what happened. Uh, you're going to learn some interesting things about our father, God, by the way he deals with the situation but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And Nahor lived after he begot Terah 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. By the way, not necessarily in that order. They're listed in order of importance, not necessarily in the order of, of age. Uh, 
So be, be, be careful about that. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iskar. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's, it's underscored here because that's because very, very important as you get into Genesis 18 and so on. And Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them from the Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Now you're, I'm going to give you a little assignment for next time. When you read chapter 12, it'll open up where it'll say, God had said to Abraham, get thee out of the land of your kindred and so forth. And leave your father and your mother, etc. And I'm going to suggest to you to look through the possibility that Abraham didn't do what God told him to do. He didn't leave his father. He moved upriver a little bit until his father died. Then he completes. And uh, uh, that's going to have profound implications. We, we have to piece that story together, not from Genesis, but from Stephen's summary of all of this in Acts 7. So as preparation for next time, you want, may want to study Stephen's careful discussion and look carefully at what's said here in the end of chapter 11 and what happened in the early part of chapter 12. Do a little homework for next time. In any case, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I want you to... We, we talked about Babylon. I'm going to insert a little parenthesis here. Babylon is founded in Genesis 11... It's prominent throughout the scripture. We're going to find uh, the, the king of Babylon, a major player in Genesis 14 in an alliance where they run rampage. And it takes an Abraham who has an army of his own of just 318 of which are born in his own household. And he goes and rescues Lot. And he accomplishes what an alliance of kings could not accomplish. He defeats these guys and gets Lot free. But that's a very, very... Interesting roots being planted in Genesis 14. That's where we encounter this strange character called Melchizedek. We'll get into all of that. But Babylon, throughout the scripture, becomes an idiom for Satan's capital or man's capital. Put it either way you want. It is the fountain of all idolatry. We always think idolatry comes everywhere. Paganism is everywhere. Yes, but it has all its roots, believe it or not, are in Babylon. Babylon becomes idiomatic of all that is evil. Now, the reason I get into this, Babylon, of course, rises to become a major world empire in the days of Daniel. In fact, Daniel's taken captive on the, one of the first sieges of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar against uh, Israel. And, of course, God uses Babylon as a form of judgment of Israel. They go into captivity for 70 years. The northern kingdoms even is, is worse. God wipes them out. They're not, they don't show up after captivity. They're gone from history. The southern kingdom, though, because of God's commitment to David, he judges them, but temporarily, for seven years. Then they're going to come back to the land, and there's a whole history. Babylon is a major, major player all through the Bible. There is a huge controversy today among Bible scholars because 
Most Bible handbooks tell you that Babylon was destroyed in 539 B.C. when the Persians conquered Babylon. That happens to be not true. They conquered Babylon. They, didn't, they did it without a battle. I want to call your attention to some strange prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let's take a quick look at Isaiah 13, verses 19 and 20. This is a prophecy by Isaiah of Babylon. Notice what it says. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. That's quite a statement. The beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. In other words, this is Chaldean. This isn't Roman. This isn't the Vatican. There are lots of other overtones that can be linked to Babylon. But what he's talking about here is a literal place in Chaldea. It shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. The problem we've got here, this has never happened. Babylon was not destroyed in 539 B.C. The Persians had their army slip under the gates and take over the city while the party was going on. In, in Daniel chapter 5, very, very colorful passage. And uh, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is convinced his city is impregnable. He had a wall, around, a double wall around it with a river that fed it so it could sustain a siege and the, between the two walls was a moat. And uh, they were, the military engineering of the day had de declared that Babylon was you know, unconquerable. So the Persians have been on the rise in the distance, but Babylon is secure, feels secure where they are, so instead of defending themselves, they throw a party. And the building that they threw the party in, you can go see today. It's there. It's been rebuilt on the original foundations. Saddam Hussein used it as a fair, for affairs of state in 1987. As you study the history of Babylon, you discover it became a secondary capital for the Persian Empire for 200 years until Alexander conquered the Persians. And when Alexander conquers the Persians, he makes it his capital. He dies there. After he dies, his four, generals divide, four of his generals divide up the, the turf, and Babylon starts to atrophy because the caravan routes shift. There's a different city that's drawing the trade, so Babylon starts to atrophy. But as late as 75 A.D., Babylon's they're still trying to make a go of it. In the 1800s of, of, of current uh, period of time, Koldui, the German archaeologist who's excavating Babylon, is able to hire local residents there. There's still rubble there. I want you to notice what it says in verse 20 by Isaiah. After it's destroyed here, as, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that's suddenly and catastrophically. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? That was not after. That was, you know, one hour. Boom, you know. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. Why? I don't know. Is it radioactive? Maybe. I have no idea. But the point is, it's not going to be inhabited. It is inhabited today. So that's our problem. If you take this passage seriously, and if you recognize that Babylon is there, you got a problem. Either you spiritualize this, say, well, this is just symbolic or something, possibility. I don't think so. Or Babylon has to rise to major prominence on the world scene in order to endure the catastrophes that the Bible talks about. That's why the most important city in Iraq was never mentioned on the news. It's not Baghdad. It's 55 miles to the south, a place called Babylon. Now, let's look at Jeremiah. Similar passage, Jeremiah 50, verse 39 and 40. Therefore the wild beasts of the desert with the wild beasts of the islands shall dwell there, and the owls shall dwell therein. 
And by the way, some of these terms, like the owls, can be used uh, uh, demonically, not just uh, literal owls, who knows. Anyway, and it shall be no more inhabited forever. That's a long time. It shall no more be inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. And notice what Jeremiah, Jeremiah uses the same phrase Isaiah does. He says, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. Wow. Has that happened? No. Is it going to happen? I believe so. And I think that that's why we want to pay attention to what's happening on the horizon. The doom of Babylon. See, the destruction of Babylon described in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 says it will never be inhabited. The building materials will never be reused. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. In contrast to the destruction of Babylon, there was the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C., but some of your, your Bible helps are wrong. They jump to conclusions that, that, that it was destroyed. No, that's not true. It was captured without a battle. If you want a proof of that, go to the London Museum and ask to see the Cylinder of Cyrus. It's about this large, you know, say a foot long and, and I don't know, six, eight inches in diameter, and has you know, writing on it, but it's translated for you there, where Cyrus brags that he conquered Babylon without a battle. And uh, that was his one of the, he did that several times. Several of the cities he conquered, he did it without any open battle. He did it by very clever general, generalmanship. What he did, he had his general set up his troops, and they, they got control of the canal system in, in, in the general region in Shinar. And they at a prearranged time, they blocked the river, diverted it, so the river level fell. And while it fell that night, the troops slipped in under the gates and took over the city. Now, when, when Cyrus, get, and by the way, some of the residents didn't know it for three days. They just took over. And uh, Belshazzar was having this big party. He makes a big mistake. He goes across the street and gets the, the, the implements from Nebuchadnezzar's Museum. Seventy years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had taken all the implements of the temple and put them in this museum. He went and got them, used them as things for the party. How do you think that went over with God? You know. So uh, suddenly there's a cloud on the party because they all look up at the wall and there's fingers, some kind of fingers writing on the wall. And they write it in code. And they can't, the, 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 the experts can't decipher it. So the Talmud suggests that it was written uh, backward, vertically and backwards. But in any case, uh, uh, the, the queen mother, the, the grandmother, if you will, of Belshazzar is still, she, she says, when your father was alive, there was a guy that could do the, interpret these things. So they call Daniel out of retirement. And they offer him all kinds of good things. He says, you keep your stuff. But then he, says, then he interprets the handwriting. In fact, we have more expressions from that book in our language. The idol has clay feet. You've heard that? The handwriting of the wall, right? And uh, your number's up. All from that uh, Daniel 5. Anyway, so Daniel, you're, you're, it's many, many tekel up farsin, and, and uh, uh, your number's up. You've been found weighed and wanting. And uh, the word peres means divided. This night is your kingdom divided. But they're only consonants, not vowels in those languages, remember. So if you infer, instead of uh, para, uh, uh, peres divided, if you put paras, it's the name for the Persians. So there's some puns involved too, by the way. But anyway, Daniel unravels this, and of course that night... They take over, and they get Belshazzar, they kill him, and, and, and they, they take over. Now, ten days later, after this big thing, Cyrus himself makes his grand entrance. And as he does, Daniel presents to him, greets him, and presents him the scroll of Isaiah, written 150 years earlier. And there's a letter to Cyrus 
It's what we call Isaiah, the end of chapter 44, chapter 45 of Isaiah. God says, I'm, I'm writing you and calling you by name so that you'll know that I am the God of the universe. And he outlines his career. And he mentions a number of things there that, are, that describe how he took over Babylon. This is, written, this is an ancient text. Cyrus is so impressed, he frees the Hebrew slaves, gives them financial incentives to go home and rebuild their temple, and even makes a donation to the temple. And uh, so that's a matter of history. It, Babylon did not get destroyed. It was taken over by the Persians. That's an important distinction because the destruction of Babylon in the Bible has never happened. The fall of Babylon definitely did happen. It became Alexander's capital for two... For, it became the Greek Empire for, what, 200 years. It atrophied, of course, over the centuries. But it's, here's the point that's important for you and I as observers of the, of the scene, and that is that Babylon is presently being rebuilt. It has been for 20 years. Saddam Hussein has put bricks into place, over a billion of them, and uh, they're stamped with all kinds of things. The, the troops there brought me one back. I have no idea what it says. It could be trivial. It could be very important. I suspect in, in uh, ancient uh, Babylonian language it says, Yankee, go home. I have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> now, there's a whole other issue we'll talk about, and that's mystery Babylon of Revelation because that that's gets even more complicated because <clears throat> it clearly <clears throat> has a, a, a linkage to the Roman Catholic Church. But it's not that simple to say that the Roman Catholic Church is mystery Babylon. There's a link of some kind. So there's a, there's a group of scholars who really focus on the paganism of Babylon, which is reflected in the current Catholic practices. And one of your best authorities on this is Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast. We have a briefing package on called The Kingdom of Blood that David and I did together. And you're welcome to get that. But, it, but it's even better. Spend your money and get his book, A Woman Rides the Beast. It's the most well-documented treatise of this issue. Alexander Hislop's book back in the 1800s is a classic, but a little argumentative. By far the best text available is Dave Hunt's book. It's well-documented. Uh, uh, check it out. And, uh, but again, Dave is so fixated on the Vatican thing, he doesn't see relevance particularly to the current-day Babylon. And I was asked at one of the academic uh, reviews here to be, uh, you know, the referee paper, so to speak. And I shocked the group because they knew I believed in a literal Babylon and Dave believed in the, you know, what I call the, you know, the Catholic Babylon. Um, and I point out that both are true. You know, and uh, we'll talk about, about that. If you look at the, the destruction of Babylon uh, in the text, not the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, and th there's uh, six chapters you should write down and read at one sitting. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, Revelation 17 and 18. Those are three pairs. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. What I encourage you to do, sometime when you've got maybe 40 minutes, less than an hour, read those six chapters at one sitting. So each one is fresh in your mind as you read the next one. And you'll be startled at how they all are talking somehow of the same thing. Many nations are attacking that all three of them, not just one nation, this isn't Babylon being conquered by one group, it's all nations are attacking, many of them. Israel is in the land and forgiven at that time. Wow, that's interesting. Both of them make the remark, of, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, I mean. Both of them say it'll never to be inhabited, bricks never re, be reused. This chart lists all the different, there's, you know, uh, eight different verses that deal with that. It all happens during a time called the Day of the Lord. That's important. That hasn't happened yet. 
it's talking about a literal, that is a Chaldean Babylon. We're not talking about the city of Rome or New York or some other idiomatic application. We're talking about a literal Babylon in Iraq on the banks of the Euphrates. There are the idioms of the kings of fornication and drunk with wine and scarlet purple and the golden cup. Both Jeremiah and Revelation both deal with that. You'll see the dovetailing right away when you read those. So this is an aerial photograph taken up many months ago from about 55 miles up. And uh, it shows you Babylon. The main, at the center is a huge synthetic mound on top of which is one of Saddam's uh, Saddam Hussein's most luxurious palaces that overlooks ancient Babylon. And uh, you find the processional way is there. This is the famed entrance to the city uh, coming down from the north into the, this fabled city, Babylon. This is the overview of all of them. There's Saddam Hussein's palace, and there's the ruins of the original Babel, apparently. Uh, if you look at the the lower group of buildings, those are the rebuilding of, of uh, the palaces. That large one there in the middle is, uh, uh, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace that the, the, where the handwriting of the wall was in the wall, where a thousand people had a party. Across to the right, that is to the east, you see that building on the other side of the processional way. That's Nebuchadnezzar's museum. That's where they got the various things that, uh, uh, that they used for the party and so forth. So let's go through. I've got a a, a film clip that uh, I think you'd be interested in. Um, the, uh, on January 17th, the Marines of HMM-165 departed San Diego for Iraq, and seven months later they came back, and they brought back some treasures for us. The Department of Defense has granted us written permission to use these film clips that you're going to see. They were taken by helicopter squadrons during their missions in Iraq. And they also brought back for me this interesting stone that uh, we have yet to really evaluate, but it's a gr obviously a treasure from the place that they brought here. So uh, if you can go ahead and run the film clip, there we are. That's his uh, palace on top of the synthetic hill. Very luxurious arrangement. That's Saddam Hussein's palace. That's not the... That's not the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's and all that stuff. That, he's going to overlook that. We'll see so shortly. As you watch the film, you'll see that uh, it's a gunship. These are Marines that made, did this for us. And uh, get a chance to see this. Uh, very ironic. The guy that built that palace was living in a hole. But anyway, here is the. You can begin to see the building. How much of this has been reconstructed from ancient Babylon, and. Uh, the main point is this is obviously, in a sense, a literal sense of speaking, inhabited. This, is, this raises the whole issue of the, the relevance of biblical prophecy. There's some more shots of his palace, which is so conspicuous there, but overlooking all these ruins. Here's some more shots of the reconstruction that's going on. Saddam Hussein spent millions of dollars hiring the best archaeologists to certify the foundations before all this was done. And uh, the bricks, many of the original bricks have Nebuchadnezzar's imprint on them, the recent ones all have Saddam Hussein's imprint on them, and uh, as he you know, as he claims uh, credit for what he's doing. Literal Babylon, a real mystery as to what its future is going to be. The Shiites, which are very dominant, a very dominant segment of Islam in Iraq. Um, great. Okay. Good.
the, uh, the Shia, the Islam is divided into two arms, Sunnis, which are the larger group, and the Shiites, which are smaller but far more intense in some respects. But the Shiites are dominant in Iran, in Yemen, and about two-thirds of Iraq. The Shiites are one of our biggest problems because the religious leadership is obviously going to resist the institution of a democratic government. So we've got those posturings going on that uh, who, uh, we'll have to just watch and see what happens. But the Shiites are also angling. What they want is they want control of Babylon because they want to establish it as a capital, their capital, in contrast to the Jewish Jerusalem. Now, what happens there, as anyone's conjecture, we'll see. But I think it's going to be very relevant for all of us to really understand that as the months go by, Babylon is going to come front center on the world politics. And what we can expect as Bible students, not necessarily next year, it might take 20 or 30 years, I have no idea, but somewhere along the way, I believe Babylon is going to emerge as a major, not necessarily the major, but a major power center on the planet Earth. One of the things that would not surprise me, even though there's no evidence of it today, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if not only Islam takes interest in, in Babylon, which is predictable, but that the Roman Catholic Church will take a major interest in it. The Roman Catholic Church regards Muslims as part of their package. They regard them as saved. And uh, the, you find pictures of the, you know, the Pope kissing the Quran and so forth. So there's a strange rapprochement occurring between the Vatican and Islam anyway. So we're going to watch this with great, great interest because as students of the Bible, we believe it's going to have to arise to major power in order to receive the judgment that God has described. There's a little more background that might be useful here. By the way, this is a glimpse of the stone that they brought back for me. I have no idea what those imprints mean. I've got to solicit some expertise to try to help uh, in, uh, you know, interpret what that means. Um, but uh, whatever it is, it is, and that's our little trophy as a, as a gift from the Marines that were taking the picture. And uh, people ask me, Chuck, where do you get all these stuff? Do you, have, you must have an incredible network. Well, I used to have, but I'm getting kind of old. That's out of date. Our biggest network are our subscribers. We've got the most interesting subscribers, the most interesting places that watch for opportunities and send us stuff. And uh, that's uh, one of the most exciting things. We, 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 some of the most exciting treasures are things that just come from various people that are in very key places that are our subscribers. Let's talk about Mystery Babylon, the Babylon that's represented in Revelation 17 and 18. It's presented as the great whore, if you will. She rides the beast with seven heads and ten horns. And don't confuse, don't confuse the beast with the woman that rides the beast. Many, many people assume that the beast, you know, the Antichrist is the, is the Pope or the Roman Catholic. No, 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 no. The religious system rides the political system for a while until it served the political system's purposes and then it turns around and eats her. She gets consumed by the very beast that she's riding. But she's described in the scriptures the mother of harlots and abominations. Babylon clearly is the mother, the source of all paganism. Every pagan idea you can find, whether it's Astarte, whether it's Diana of the Ephesians, they all trace back to Babylon. Their, their original Chaldean names get translated with Latin names or Greek names, what have you, but it's the same mythology, the same stories, the same counterfeits all the way through. All idolatry has its roots in Babylon. 
But there's another thing that is also emphasized in Revelation 17. Not only is she the great whore, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And one of the disturbing realities you need to recognize is the tragedies that have been perpetrated throughout history in the name of the church. The medieval church, and by the way, I'm not talking just about the Catholics. The Protestant church, you'll be shocked to discover, has its nightmares when it got into power. People burned at the stake and other things, believe it or not. Uh, major, major attacks on home Bible studies and stuff. Not just, but anyway, certainly though, as you look, as you, if you study European history, you cannot understand European history unless you, under, unless you recognize the struggle for temporal power by the Vatican and the kings of the earth. How they, even they trembled before the, the Vatican. You have to understand that one pope one afternoon murdered more Christians than all the Roman emperors put together. You need to go through all that. And as a serious Christian, you need to understand history. And it's not a question of Catholic bashing. That's not the point at all. The, the Protestant church has its things to account for too. But you need to understand, when it speaks drunk with the blood of the saints, that will have a whole different meaning to you if you really understand the history of Europe. But then in, verse, in chapter 18 of Revelation, you have Babylon described as the great city. And she's destroyed in one hour. And there are three groups of people that are upset by that. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and those that trade by sea. And it took me a while to realize that what the Holy Spirit's telling us here is that Babylon the Great, the city, is built on as a center of world trade. Now you say, well, gee, Babylon's not a seaport. Alexander was going to make it one. He had plans to make it as a, make a harbor for a thousand ships by, ex- by, by uh, dredging or what have you. But in today's world, you know, you don't have to you don't have to have a seaport to be a to be a, a trade centroid. So what's going to happen here? I don't know. But knowing the thing to do is understand what your Bible says and then see what's going to happen. Don't see what's going to happen and try to force fit it on the Bible. That's backwards. That's called exegesis. Exegesis. Find out what the Bible says. Understand what it says. Then watch and see. And, and then as you see it unfold, you can give God the glory. The, the prophecy is there not to predict the future but to glorify God when it happens. There's a difference. It's, it's, there's a nonlinearity that's very important. Well, these two issues. Is it a literal Babylon? Is it symbolic of the Vatican? Or is it a Chaldean super city? I think both are true. And the linkage I get is from Zechariah chapter 5. In Zechariah 5, there's a few verses you want to come. There's this one. Zechariah is full of these funny little enigmatic prophecies. And in chapter 5, starting at verse 5, there's this weird vision of the woman and the ephah. And uh, so in Zechariah 5, and the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what it is that goeth forth. Now, in the scripture, when you've read a lot of Bible, uh, 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 a, lot of, a lot of your Bible, when you see lift up now thine eyes, that little phrase is a little trigger. That's a way of in advance telling you what's coming is very important. When God says to Abraham, lift up now thine eyes, and lift up thy, that, that's sort of a way of getting your attention. What's coming, pay attention to what's coming is, is a way you might, it's sort of an anticipatory signal here. The angels talked with me, went forth and said to me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? He said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is the resemblance throughout all the earth. 
Now, what is an ephah? That's not in our normal vocabulary, but if you visualize that like a, a, a large jar, say the, 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 roughly the size of an oil drum, a bushel measure, roughly. That was, the ephah was the standard volumetric measure in the commercial world in those days. Okay. And behold, verse 7, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now, talent is here used as a, the standard unit of weight, roughly 97 pounds. It's a big lead lid. Okay. Behold, there lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So get the picture. There's a woman. This is a vision, of course, not a literal woman. It's a, this woman is put into this ephah, and then the lead, uh, a talent of lead put on top. She's sealed in this big jar. Get the picture? Who is she? Well, the next verse tells us. He said, this is wickedness. That's her label. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. So this woman representing wickedness is put in this huge container and it's sealed in it with a lead lid. It gets worse. Then lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Well, okay, you've got this creature sealed inside this big jar. Then you've got these two creatures. Don't say they're angels. Two women, whatever that means. But they had wings like a stork. Now you have to be Jewish to realize that a stork is an unclean bird. So these are creepy things. These aren't good things. These are demonic things, apparently. But the wind was in their wings. Is that There's a spirit. A good spirit, bad spirit, I don't know about that. Wind, ruach, same word as wind and spirit. But the, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. That's bad news. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. Bear in mind, this is a vision, okay? So these two strange creatures pick this thing up and they carry it somewhere in this gap between earth and heaven. All right? Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established there and set there upon her own base. Period. End of message. Gee, thanks a lot. What does that mean? I don't know. But i tell you what I suspect it means. I think the woman that is being put in this ephah is the same whore that Revelation talks about. Babylon in the sense that it started at Babel and continued through history to be the fountain of all false worship. You really need to do a careful study of the letter to the church at Thyatira, the fourth of the letters. You need to recognize that the four letters to the seven churches parallel the seven, the seven churches parallel the seven parables of the Lord in Matthew 13. And the fourth parable was that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal. Now that's not explained in the scripture, but you have to be Jewish to understand it. Leaven is always a type of sin or falsehood falsehood. And this woman takes leaven and puts it in three, me three measures of meal is the fellowship offering from Genesis 18 on in both the Arab and the Hebrew cultures because of the visit of Abram and uh, visit to Abram and Sarah of the three heavenly visitors. This woman took leaven and put it in this. And if you're Jewish, you gasp with horror. She's not supposed to do that. That's the fourth kingdom parable. 
See, pretty soon that leaven corrupts the whole thing is the point. The fourth um, letter to churches is Thyatira, which tolerates that woman Jezebel, is what the Lord uses an expression, who was well, she was head of all the priests against the northern kingdom and so forth. So the point is, it's interesting that the, the, the religious system that started in Babylon, when Babylon was conquered by the Persians, the, the priests always followed the money. And so it moved to the capital of Persia, to Persepolis probably, in those days. And then when the, when the Greeks conquer the Persians and then the Romans conquer the Greeks, it migrates eventually to where? To Rome. Pagan Rome is simply the transplanted religious system of Babylon with Latin names. And of course, when the church marries the world under Constantine, and even more seriously under his second successor, and, and, and Christianity becomes the enforced state religion of the empire, not under Constantine, but a second successor. We have lost the whole concept of regeneration as a believer. It became politically correct to be, quote, a Christian. All these rites and all these uh, celebrations they were used to start to get translated with Christian names. That's where we get mistletoe and Christmas trees and all that stuff. That's not Christian. That's pagan, but adapted, you see. And, we do? and the names of our week are all, you know, these ancient gods. So... So the point is this system, which is now exemplified, but not limited to, don't limit it to just the Roman Catholic Church, it's everywhere, but that's certainly representative of it. It's going to be centralized, I believe, back to where it all started. Somehow, some way, this is all going to migrate back to where it all started in Shinar, where it had it, there it shall be established and set there upon her own base. This is the great whore of Revelation uh, 17 and 18, I believe. So I think the destruction of Babylon is going to be very literal. On the banks of the Euphrates, we can see it, the place you see in the air photographs, on the one hand. But when that happens, it will also have become by then some kind of power centroid for religion and for trade. It very well may eclipse Rome, Paris, London, and New York. Even if it gets near parity, it would serve, us, serve the purpose to be idiomatic of all that. But let's watch and see, because that's what it all says. The woman ephah. woman called wickedness, sealed a talent of lead, carried by two women with wings of a stork between the earth and heaven, to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Okay, next time we go from the Tower of Babel to the call of Abraham. We're now moving into what really is the more exciting... The first 11 chapters are kind of fun because they're really in this misty area of prehistory. And that's kind of fun stuff. There are many books that just deal with the first 11 chapters because they, they are a, a, a certain kind of study. And, uh, but we're, we're going to start shifting gears now. We're going to be talking about stuff we know a lot more about. Up till now, we've been conjecturing. We tried. The more you know about modern science, the more comfortable Genesis re reads, by the way. But more importantly, as we get to Genesis 12 on, not only are we going to talk about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we're going to discover Jesus Christ around every corner. And that'll be part of the challenge, is not, not to get bogged down in some of those things on the one hand, but develop a sensitivity. Um, we're going we're to... Uh, if you haven't ever discovered the... Early uh, the, the the Abraham Isaac Jacob thing in terms of uh, the relationship to the New Testament, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be the most the most exciting thing about the book of Genesis, 
is not the degree to which it anticipates the discoveries of modern science. That's fun, but that pales in comparison to discovering that Jesus Christ is on every page of the book. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You know, one of the things as we go through these studies, we should not lose sight of. We try to cover so much ground that we get so focused on the exposition of the text, and that's appropriate. That's what we're here for in many respects. But there's something else not to lose sight of. You always should, as you drive home, start asking yourselves the so what question. Gee, that was interesting. We saw some neat stuff. So what? And what I mean by that, so what's the implication in your life? Is it life-changing? Does it demonstrate a little more vividly the reason to take God's word seriously? That's part of our motivation because that's sort of fundamental to everything else. If you really understand the word of God, you then will really begin to understand who Jesus Christ was. But that's just step one. You need to get to know him. You need a personal relationship with him. And what we should be doing, if we had the time, I'm giving you that assignment. As we go through these things, everything we talk about in the creation week, in all these other things, have an impact on your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's going to become clearer and clearer as we move forward from chapter 12 on. But that doesn't mean it, you know, everything you've, you, as we've gone through these dozen chapters together, there's some things that you're probably bored to death with. There's some things that really grabbed you. Cling to those. Explore those. But all of them take relevance in terms of your personal relationship with the living Lord. That's really what it's all about. And that's going to become more and more palpable as we go forward in chapter 12. But with that in mind, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we, we do rejoice as we begin to appreciate just who you really are. Our Creator God, who has fashioned us and has provided such abundance for us. We stagger, fathers, we begin to realize the predicament that we're in because of sin. Not just the sin of our forebears, but the sin that is in our nature, that we by ourselves are by nature sinners, Father. And as we grasp that, Father, as we begin to appreciate how we find, how many ways we find to grieve you, we again stagger at your patience and your grace and your love. That you, knowing all this in advance, provided a program in which the eligibility of Jesus Christ could be transferred to us that you've provided a destiny for us that we can't even begin to imagine, that we have no ability to earn for ourselves, but is simply there for the receiving. We thank you, Father, as we begin to really understand your plan of redemption, that we have an eligibility through Jesus Christ. Father, we just overwhelm. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit to reveal this to us. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for all the treasures hidden around every turn. We do pray, Father, earnestly that you would increase in each of us a new hunger 
a new appetite, a new passion for your word above all other things. And we pray, Father, that through that word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would help each of us to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you've also placed before us. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us be to be faithful. Give us the resolve. Give us the urgency of your priorities. Help us, Father, to be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. God bless you.